0: Good morning again. It's good to see you all this morning. We have been in 1 Timothy. We are in 1 Timothy. And we've been in this section that talks about church leadership. The last two weeks talking about elders. We're going to finish up that section in verse chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 this morning. Uh, about church elders. Next week we're going to move on to deacons. So we're kind of camping in this idea of what uh, elders are all about. And we've been talking about this. Elders, of course, as we have seen, are a plurality of godly men who oversee the the work, the oversight of the church. They're shepherds. They are pastors. Uh, They are the ones whom God has given the oversight of the church. And so um, as we continue, I'm going to take a, a few moments just to Answer some questions that uh, people have asked. I know our life group has asked some of these, and I've heard about them in other life groups as well. But just uh, a, a few questions about what we do as elders. What do the elders do? And so here are the questions uh, uh, When and how often do elders meet? Uh, Valley Bible Church. So um, we meet uh, twice a month uh, on uh, Tuesday nights, and you are welcome to come to those meetings. Uh, just let us know if you want to come if there's something you want to bring to the elders You're, you're sure welcome to come and every one of those meetings we pray uh, We are devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word and we always say when you hand out when we uh, hand out the connection cards Give us a prayer request because the elders pray for these we don't just do that individually We do that as a group. That's the first thing that we do first order of business is for us to pray um, so, and then we meet and we talk about the oversight of the church. We talk about how are the worship services going? How's the music going? How's the preaching? How are Sunday schools going? How about life groups, hospitality ministry, music ministry, whatever it may be? We evaluate, evaluate, and continue to talk about all the ministries of the church. And um, that takes a good bit of time just to talk about what is happening in the life of the church, uh, and the direction of the church. We also have a men's study that is every other Tuesday morning um, in the month, uh, and most of our elders attend that as well. Uh, we have an additional meetings uh, all throughout the year, uh, a lot of breakfast meetings and coffee meetings where we meet to discuss uh, various things. We talk about sh- what we call shepherding issues, that is when we have problems with people, if there are marriage difficulties or financial dis- difficulties or illnesses, we, we talk about all of those uh, kinds of shepherding needs to make sure that we're not missing something or someone. And then we also have yearly retreats. Uh, once a year, we have a couple of days where we usually go away and we spend a uh, uh, couple of days hammering out uh, what's the, the course. We chart the course for the next year. So there's a lot of time involved in, in our elders' meetings, <clears throat> and that just gives you a, a little bit of uh, a taste of what we do and how often we meet. One question is how do we make decisions? We do not vote. We do not um, come up with any kind of a uh, a system where we vote uh, four to two, therefore we're gonna go with something. We practice what is called unanimity, that is we, we are unanimous on decisions or we do not move forward on a decision. Um, if something important comes up, and we will talk about it to death sometimes, we, we are known for moving at a glacial pace, and uh, sometimes that's good because we are careful, and when we make a decision, everybody is on board. Once in a while, do we do this, you know, go around the room, you guys up all up for this, yes, but we don't say, okay, four up and two down, therefore we're moving forward. It doesn't work that way. If one man is not comfortable, we do not move on. Um, And the good news is that that rarely happens. We usually come to a satisfactory agreement between all of us. Um, And what is the relationship between elders and deacons? Um, A number of years ago, 12 years maybe, I'll I'll have to check on that. We're going to look next week at deacons. A number of years ago, we... Grew to a position uh, just by virtue of the numbers of people of Valley Bible Church, we needed help because elders were spending a lot of time talking about should we buy this lawnmower or should we buy this lawnmower, and who 's going to do this plumbing and that plumbing and, and figuring out things and so we uh, charted uh, a course for deacons and we chose uh, some godly men and so uh, The elders are primarily concerned with the prayer and the ministry of the word and the overseeing of ministry. And uh, deacons take care of the facility. They take care of our widows. They um, take care of the finances. They're the ones who are in control of the budget uh, with elder approval. At every deacon meeting, they meet once a month. There is an elder there uh, amongst them. And at every elder meeting, there is a deacon there to represent the deacon. So we have that uh, communication that is always going back and forth. So with that, uh, uh, you might have other questions, bring them up at your life groups so that you can uh, talk about them. And if you have other questions, I think there was something that was posted in uh, the newsletter. If you have questions, you can go online and post those as well. Um, As Ben said, we are, um, since we're talking about elders, if you know of a man who meets these qualifications, we uh, would appreciate hearing from you so you can write that in the connection card you can talk to one of us elders you can email it Um, but i think since we're talking about it it's it would be good for us to hear from you because the way we choose elders is we hear from the congregation we examine those men to see if they think that they meet the qualifications if their wife thinks that they meet the qualifications if we believe that they meet the qualifications and then we put that name back to you to see if you believe they meet the qualifications, so that's how we select our elders and um, um, if you have men in mind we'd like to, to hear from you. One additional communication we you know we rolled out our building program some weeks ago. Our hope was to get a mailing out this last week to you all to bring you up to date and see about your part in uh, As we look at the financial part of this, um, we're we're working on that, and you'll be seeing something this week. So we've had many people ask us about it, and so be patient. Uh, You'll be hearing this week. All right, we're moving back to uh, chapter uh, 3. And if you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to look at the final three overseer qualifications. So let's read all of them. Would you please stand as we read God's word? We believe in giving attention to the reading of his word. So thank you for standing, if you are able. And um, we are reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The word of God. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert? so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Father, thank you for your word. Would you bless it this morning? Would you bless the reading of it? our understanding, its preaching, and our application of it to our lives and to this church. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed as we read these qualifications, the last three, verses 4 through 7, are a little bit different stylistically from the first few verses. In verses 2 through 3 that we looked at uh, last week, we had 11 of these qualities, and they were just da 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 da. It was just a list, one word in most of these. Then, when we get to verses four through seven, he lists three qualifications, the last three, and with each of the qualification, he gives a reason for that qualification. He is to manage his whole his own household because he is not to be a new convert, so that. He has to have a good reputation outside the church so that. So he expands these threes, these these last three qualifications. And it's likely that the reason he does that is that these are three qualifications that the elders in Ephesus were not meeting. These are probably three where the false teachers had gotten their hooks into the church. And we have men who are not meeting the qualifications. They are upsetting whole families. They are upsetting the household of God, and they're not. therefore, if they are not able to take care of the household of God, certainly they're not taking care of their children and vice versa. And some of these elders had probably been appointed. Uh, they were new to the faith, but most likely, they were um, uh, well-known in the community, and so because they were new to the faith, there were they suffered consequences. And some of them, most likely just because they did not meet the qualifications, had a bad reputation, a bad testimony, a bad witness in the community. And that affected the entire church. And so, you see, as the elders go, so goes the church, as we said in the first week. And so it's important for us to make sure that we we choose men who meet these qualifications. Remember, the overarching qualification is to be above reproach. And he is to be above reproach in every one of these areas. And so, as we look at overseer qualifications, the overseer is to be above reproach in his family leadership. His family leadership, his family ministry. All men have a ministry to their families. All men lead their families. And elders, overseers, must be above reproach in this area. He says in verse 4, he must be and this is the necessity once again, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. I have to tell you, this is the hardest of all the qualifications in my estimation. (laughs) Kurt, I don't know what you think, but I think this is the hardest. Uh, Tara and I were talking about this yesterday, pastors and those in ministry that we've known over the years, um, we always lament the difficulties of our children, and sometimes they're severe, sometimes they're not so severe, but we take them to heart, and Um, Having children under control and uh, and who are walking with God, that you're leading them lovingly, is the hardest of all the qualifications. It's one thing to be in charge of an organization, but your children are close to you and they know you, and you want them to lead you out of love. Paul had addressed the marriage of an elder. He is to be the husband of one wife. For some reason, he waits till now, instead of putting them together, but he waits till now at the end of the qualifications to talk about the rest of his household and his children. He must be one who manages his own household well. The household, of course, would be the husband and the wife and the children. That is the family, that is the household. And is he saying that uh, elders must have children? No. He's saying elders that have wives must be devoted to them. Elders that have children must lead them well. But the observations I want to just put out to you are this, is that that the elder starts with his own household. He must must be one who manage his own household household well it starts with himself first things first this speaks of the priority of an elder in his ministry you know the common phrase you've heard it the shoemaker's children go barefoot right and that's you know the baker's children go hungry the 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 pastor's children go wild <laughs> and oftentimes that's what happens because the 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 shepherd whether it's an elder or a pastor is not taking care of his own household first Men, whether you're an elder, a deacon, or just a man, if the church comes before your kids, they will resent it. It's great to be involved in ministry. Busyness is not godliness, though. And, and be careful of your busyness in ministry. Yes, be busy about the work of the Lord, but we do not sacrifice our children for the gospel in fact, the one who sacrifices his children for ministry is not qual- qualified for it. He's not qualified for ministry. You love Christ most by loving your children and your wife best. That's how you demonstrate your love for Christ. And it has to start at the home. The second thing, observation, I want you to notice is this, that Paul does use the word household, which means the husband and the wife and the children, and we're we're coming up to verse 15, the key verse of the whole whole book, where Paul says, in this case, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. This is why he's writing the book, so that we would all know how we are to conduct ourselves in the household family of God. It's a household. And the elders start with their own family, with their own household. We are a family of families. And elders must first and foremost shepherd their own families. And he uses the word manage twice. He must be one who manages his own household because if he can't manage them, this is the word for leadership, really. It's a word that means to stand in front of others, to be out front. That's what this word means. It's about leadership. Sometimes it has the idea of protection as well. I want to show you a verse that we will come to in chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5.17, that says this. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. We'll get to chapter five and the rest of verse uh, uh, verse 17. But that first phrase, the elders who rule well, is the same word that Paul uses of elders managing their household to lead, to be out in front. And oftentimes we talk about a church like Valley Bible Church. Our church polity is elder rule. We prefer the term elder led because rule has the ideas that we are authoritarian and what we say go goes etc but this is the word to manage or to lead so the elders are to be leading the church and a man who who aspires to lead the church must first lead his family men you are to be out front you're to be standing in front of your family You are to be first. You are to be leading them. You are to take care of your own household. Men's leadership initiative, that's what this is all about. Those of you men who are involved in this, you're part of a a fire team. And we're meeting and we're talking about what does it mean to lead my wife, lead my family, to be up front, to be an example that we might have a family of families that are godly. This is not just a requirement for elders, men. This is a require for every man in the church to be a, a loving head of his wife, to be the loving leader of his family. It is required of each and every man in the church to lead his own household. The next observation from this verse is that the elder has to keep his, ch- his children under control. That means they need to submit to him. They must be in subjection to his authority, his family must be in order because, again, if, if men are seeking that, they are responsible to have their own family in order. And he must do this with dignity, it says. And I know, does that mean that his children are to be dignified or does that mean that he must be dignified? I think it's the former. It, I think it speaks when he, says, um, when he says that he must have his children um, yeah, yeah, who has managed his children and keeping his children under control with all dignity? I believe this, this speaks of the manner of his leadership. How does he keep them in order? Because a lot of men keep their children in order, don't they? Yeah. But what is, does, does he do so in a dignified way? Some men have their children in, under control, but it is forced, it is authoritarian. It is, if you will, undignified. Some children obey on the outside, but on the inside, they're just waiting for the day, aren't they? When they're going to be free. Because they don't understand why they're to obey. If they're just obeying because they don't want to embarrass their dad, that's not a good reason. The best fathering is leading with authority, an authority that is understood by those who are being led, an authority that is found in love and compassion. That is the best fathering. They respect their father because he loves them. And they respect their father because they love him. And so they follow him in that regard. Gordon Fee emphasizes the difference between having children who are submissive and making children submissive, saying there is a fine line between demanding obedience and gaining it. You can gain obedience through love and leadership and proper leadership. I think it was Josh McDowell who said, rules without relationship equals rebellion. We set all these hard and fast rules for our kids, and we do not have a relationship with them. They might follow the rules, but one day, if there is no relationship with them, they're going to walk away from the rule maker who is God, of course. And some fathers, yes, they discipline their children because they love them, but they don't do a good job of communicating that they love them. Yes, they love their children, and that's why they they discipline them, but they don't ever tell them why they're disciplining them and what is the purpose of the discipline, and that they love and care for them. And elders would excel at this, but all men should. The reason that he gives in verse 5 is this. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 5. The reason an elder is to be properly and successfully leading his family is because he is to care for the family of God. And it's a rhetorical question. If he can't manage his family, how is he going to take care of the family of God? What's the expected answer to that? Well, he can't, or he's not going to do a very good job. And this says as much about the nature of the church as it does the nature of the family in an elder because it tells us that the, the, the proving ground for taking care of the family of God is taking care of one's own family. Why? Because they're both families. It's a household. They are similar to one another. And the reason is put down in this rhetorical question because he has to learn to take care of his family first before he can take care of the church. You've heard me say it many, many times, we believe this at Valley Bible Church, that the church is a family. It is made up of God's children. We are all brothers and sisters. God is our Father. father. We have elder brothers and we have elder mothers in the church. We have uh, have children, we have uh, families and widows and singles, but we are all a family of brothers and sisters. And we are related to one another by blood, blood of Christ. And the care of the church is like that of caring for a family. As I mentioned this uh, during communion, the word care for here is used by uh, when Jesus is telling the story of, of the, the, the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan comes across this man who is robbed and beaten, and he provides assistance. Medical care for this man. And it's a picture of what elders are to do that we don't provide medical care, but we point you to the great physician. We point you to the healing. We point you to the restoration process. We point you to good health, spiritual health that comes from Christ. And we care for you in that regard that all would grow up into the image of Christ. 1 Peter 5 tells us about this manner of eldership and overseeing where Peter says, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and the witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now listen to the manner of leading that Paul describes for these elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because your arm is twisted, but because you want to do it, Because you're called to do it. But voluntarily, he said, not you're voluntold, not you're elected. God elects you to that position and selects you. According to the will of God, he says, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us overseers. And not for sordid gain. You don't do it for money. You don't do it for prestige. But with eagerness, your heart must be in it. If your heart is not in shepherding, you should not be in the business of shepherding. Nor yet as lording, lording it over those allotted to your charge. We're not to be like the world where we're authoritarian and we tell people what to do. But he says proving to be examples to the flock. That we are the examples of leadership and gentleness in going the way that God is leading us. One question then, going back to the elders, does this mean that his children must be saved? In Titus, it says he must have children who believe and some hold to that. Uh, I think the translation is probably better, children who are faithful while they're under the, the shepherd's home. I think it's an impossible standard to, to say that your children must be saved if you're going to be an elder. I don't know how we can, uh, salvation is of the Lord. Fathers and mothers can provide the the, the environment, the prayer, the teaching, the relationship, the fellowship of the church, but parents cannot ensure that their children will know Christ. And those of you who have raised kids and are out in the world and you thought, man, I thought that they walked with God and they knew the Lord, and you look back and you go, maybe they didn't. There are no guarantees. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. That is not a promise. It's a maxim. It's proverbial. Because the Proverbs also say, if you are industrious and work hard, you'll be prosperous. Not always. You just need to learn to work hard. And you need to train up your children in the way that they should go. But it is not a guarantee of salvation. There is none. Many parents put false hope in that childhood profession of faith at VBS or Sunday school. The proof is in the pudding, right? The proof is in the faithfulness of their life. So here are a couple of things I want you to know. Just as elders are not to be perfect, neither must we expect their children to be. Elders are not perfect, nor will their children be perfect. And I I can tell you as one in ministry, um, I think our children, uh, this is... I just say this, we have struggled in this area like other parents, like others in ministry, we've had our ups and downs, we've had real challenges with our kids sometimes and it's been difficult at times. But on the other hand, there have been times I know where people have put unrealistic expectations on our children because of the pastor's kids or the elder's kids. And so we need to recognize that uh, we can't expect children to be perfect which brings us to the next lesson here we must avoid the same two extremes that we put on the elders two extremes holding fathers and children to an impossible standard that their kids are saved and they and that they never misbehave but we should never excuse poor discipline by fathers either we should never do that and it's obvious when it's happening so third Give grace and patience when leaders struggle with their kids, because there may be a season in which they do. But remember, God has given the qualifications, and we must hold to the qualifications. And I think sometimes we need to look at the overall picture of an elder and his family over a period of time. Just because they're going to a current struggle does not mean that they're no longer qualified, but they may be. Sometimes an elder will need to step away and take care of his own household, his own household. We need to expect children to be childish, but we should expect their fathers to correct them when necessary. And a man who is oblivious to a child's misbehavior probably is not going to aspire to be an elder. All Paul is saying is this, a poor father will make a poor church leader. And so men aspire to be good fathers. Which brings us to some words for our dads here this morning, okay? And all the men. Number one, men, model humility. Model humility with your kids. Admit when you're wrong and tell them that. If you made a mistake, even if it was 20 years ago, or 10, or 5, or 5 minutes ago, if you disciplined them improperly, if you lost your temper or whatever it may be, do not be afraid to go to your children and say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? That must be modeled with your children. Second of all, model forgiveness. Forgive them because they will hurt you. <laughs> Families hurt each other, that just happens, okay? And if you've not been hurt by your children, and maybe you won't be, but some of you may but you must model forgiveness because isn't that what Christ has done for us? We always model the gospel. Third, model grace and mercy. Yes, there are rules, but sometimes when rules are broken, we show grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the most wonderful word to us when we think about our our salvation that God is gracious to us. So be gracious and merciful to your children when you discipline them. And maybe once in a while, you forego the discipline just out of mercy and grace. And finally, not finally, the next one is <laughs> model godliness. This is what this is all about. That one will know how to live and conduct himself in the family of God, model godliness. That's what we're talking about, men becoming like Jesus Christ and model that for your children so they will know what they will want to become as well. And finally, this is for men, for all of us, teach your children to honor church elders. We teach them to honor the police and firemen and a doctor, to show honor to their teachers and their coaches and the refs. But teach them about church leaders teach them who they are and what they are all about and teach them that this these are men who 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 deserve the honor of children and the respect that is due the office so please take the time to teach your children that so his family ministry his family comes first and a qualification for a leader is his own family leadership The second one of our last three in verse 6 is his proven maturity. His proven maturity because it says in verse 6, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. We don't put new believers in a position of deacon or elder. The word convert, new convert, we get the word neophyte from it. A neophyte, you're just new on a job, you're the neophyte there. If you're newly married, you're a neophyte husband. If you're a new parent, you're a neophyte mom. You're someone who's just new to this. And we don't put neophytes into a position of leadership. It is just wrong. And it is not fair to them either. We put them in a a place of temptation to pride because anyone who is new to something has this in common. They think that they know more than they do, right? Right? Because pride is always lurking at the door. And as the term elder implies, there's time and maturity that is involved in the life of a man who's going to be an overseer. Time and maturity. And it's likely that in Ephesus some men were put into this position way too quickly. And maybe they were wealthy, maybe they were influential, maybe they were charismatic, and it was a disaster. The reason, so that he will not become conceited. The word means puffed up, full of smoke, full of nothing, billowy air, arrogant, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. This is the, the condemnation that, the, that was upon the devil because of his pride. This is why he fell, so he knows all too well because he was bitten by it. He knows that this is a pretty good trap. This is a pretty good thing to tempt others with, pride, that is, to be conceited. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. Stumbling. So the idea that someone is new to the faith, uh, it's clear that we should not put them in a position as an elder, as an overseer, because we're putting them in a position to fall in in the sin of pride. Why? It's an honorable thing. It, It comes with prestige. It comes with notoriety. People honor you. You have the title. And not everybody can handle that. And the enemy uses that to cause the downfall of those. We see it all the time. In, in popular culture, um, we, we, we know someone, we know their background and who maybe they're famous, uh, an actor, a musician, an athlete, an author, and we hear that they came to Christ. And then all of a sudden, they're an expert on everything, right? And they're speaking at churches and they're writing books. And then the next thing we, we hear, whatever happened to so-and-so? Yeah, they walked away from the faith, Sometimes new converts are a flash in the pan. You know the story of the uh, the, the parable of the sowers, the seed that falls and it, it goes up very quickly and it's choked off by the cares of the world and Satan comes and takes it away. That often happens. So we need to be careful that uh, men have time in grade before we put them in that position. And when there is pride, judgment comes. So here are the reasons maturity takes time to become a mature christian does not happen overnight and those of you who have been a christian a long time you're you're still saying when am i going to really be mature and the longer you're a christian the more mature you understand that you are but maturity that is recognized by others takes time second of all knowledge of scripture takes time Yes, uh, maybe many of you, and I was this way when I was a new Christian. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. Knowledge, 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 knowledge. Read the Bible, books, books, books. Knowledge puffs up, Paul said. Knowledge in itself It takes time to inculcate the scriptures in your life. It takes time to apply them. It takes time for the scriptures to be embedded in your soul so that it comes out of your pores and out of your thinking and out of your words and out of your actions. That takes time and it doesn't happen in days and weeks and months. Next, faithfulness is proved over time. That's what faithfulness is. We can't say that a, a guy was, uh, is new to the church and he's really busy in the church. He's been here for three months. Well, he's faithful. Well, he's been faithful for three months. True faithfulness is recorded over a longer period of time. And we, we watch men, and we should be watching men and women for positions of, uh, of leadership, but they are proved over time by their faithfulness. Next, next, just the very experience of living and the very experience of leading takes time. People have to learn to make mistakes um, leading the worship service, doing it for the first time, being new at it. It takes time. You get better and better at it, at being a teacher, at being an elder, at being a deacon, at being a father, at being a husband. These things take time, and they they, they are developed through trials oftentimes. And the last in this section is this acquiring wisdom takes time. Proverbs 4 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom, and with your acquiring, get understanding. Wisdom, the word, Old Testament word for wisdom, hakma, means skill in living. It means taking what you know and applying it to your life. And, and that happens through trial and error and living and examples and, and, and situations that you're placed in. So acquiring wisdom to be a wise man or a wise woman does not happen in a short period of time. It takes place over a longer period of time. So for our overseer, we see His family leadership. We see his proven maturity. And in verse 7, we see his public reputation. His public reputation. Verse 7 And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Notice Paul uses the word he must have. It's the same word that he used in verse 2 where he said, he must be above reproach. And here he says he must have a good reputation that he not fall into reproach. It is necessary. He's, he's closing the loop here. All he has said so far is he must be under above reproach in the church. And now in verse 7 he's saying and he must be above reproach in public, in the community idea of reputation here is the word for testimony it is your confession about christ do you confess christ then do you live christ do you live him before the world and likely the church had a bad reputation in the community because of the false teachers it's easy to have a good reputation on sunday mornings isn't it because we're we're, we're happy and we're smiling we're shaking hands and we're saying hi to one another and i'm not saying that's fake i'm just saying it's easy Sunday is rehearsal for the rest of the week and the people with whom you work probably know you better than the people with whom you worship. Do you think that's true? Most likely. They see your foibles. They see your frustrations. They see you under stress. And yes, you spend time with people um, uh, fellowshipping and life groups and, and those kinds of things and we're rehearsing how to live in our neighborhoods, how to live with our relatives, how to live in the world and, and being a testimony. And a poor public testimony reflects poorly on all of us, on the church, on the gospel, and on the name of Christ. So a man who is foul, a mal- man who cheats, a man who's a drunkard, a man who's a womanizer in public, testimony is lost. That testimony is lost And sometimes I hear people say, well, you know what? I don't really care what people think about me. I'm just going to follow Christ. Yes, follow Christ. And no, you should not be a people pleaser. But you should care what people think of you. Because if you have that attitude, people are going to say, yeah, those Christians, they don't care about anything but themselves. So here's the thing. Two things in closing on this one about our public testimony and public reputation. The testimony of our life must match the testimony of our lips. If we, are, we say we are believers, we should live like believers, and we should, be, we should tell our, our coworkers, our relatives, our neighbors that we're believers, and we should represent that testimony accurately with the way that we live. A good reputation means that we are living out our faith in a good way so that people, if they malign us for doing the Lord's work, that's not reputation. That's not what reputation is. We are to keep our behavior excellent before the Gentiles. That means we are, our behavior is to be right before God so that when they slander us for the good things that we do, God will hold them accountable. But here's the reason, once again, he should have, he says, a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Twice he's mentioned the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. He seeks leaders to devour. He seeks you to devour, husbands, families, churches. Our enemy wants to destroy our testimony before the world, and so destroy the church. And when we do not live our testimony properly, when our lips do not match our life, people go, yeah, those Christians, it doesn't work. I have no reason to believe. By the way, you may think about this, men, as you aspire to be an elder. um, When you do, you put on this vest, and there's a target right there. (laughs) You become a target of the enemy. I'm just being honest, okay? And your children may be too. You have to take that on. You have to count the costs. God God is faithful, though. God is sufficient. He's up to the task. And your brothers have your back when we stand together. So in conclusion, two things, all right? Remember the place of spiritual battle. We're talking about it now. Remember the place of spiritual battle. So I encourage you to pray for your elders, pray for your shepherds, pray for your pastors, pray for their children if you know their children's names. Pray that those fathers would be able to lead to those kids in a godly and holy way. Second of all, remember that we're a family. We need godly fathers and we need godly mothers. We need godly children. And we need as a church to lead a god leave a godly legacy in the Spokane Valley and in the area in which we live. So that is what we are seeking to do with our overseers, our shepherds at Valley Bible Church. Let's pray. We're grateful, Father, for the Word of God and how it challenges us. These are difficult words this morning, and yet, good ones, it's a good thing to aspire to be an elder. It's a good thing to manage families well. Thank you for the goodness of the call to leadership, the men of Valley Bible Church who have answered that call. We pray you would protect them, lead them, guide them as they make decisions, as they lead, and as we point others to Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.